Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Before we get into today's episode, here's David from the History of England podcast to let you know about the tremendous work he's doing over there. If you're interested in anything to do with the history of England, everything from William the Conqueror to the War of the Roses, then you absolutely need to check out the History of England podcast on all podcasting apps. Hello, everyone. My name is David Crowther, and I'm here to tell you about my History of England podcast, a chronological retelling of the story of the English from start to finish. There's all the great events, politics, drama, bit of bloodletting here or there, and also how the English lived, worked, and played, and some of their better gags, and the all-important context of the times they lived in. The History of England can be found on a good podcatcher near you, or even some bad ones, and at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 58, The Faction Menace. In the last episode, we examined the institutions of terror, from the reinstatement of the Revolutionary Tribunal to the creation of the Committee of Public Safety. We discussed a range of far-reaching reforms designed to eradicate the counter-revolution. In this episode, we'll be discussing the two other major developments which occurred in response to the multitude of crises in the spring of 1793. Firstly, the all-consuming factional feuds which paralysed the government, and secondly, the realignment of the mountain to the demands of the Parisian sans-culottes. With deputies being arrested and impeached, and with the Jacobins adopting drastic political and economic reforms, there is no shortage of drama to discuss. For this episode, there are two fantastic episode extras. The first examines accusations of conspiracy against Danton, in particular regarding his connections with General de Maurier. The second examines the arrest of the former Duc d'Orléans and the circumstances which saw his removal from the convention. Of course, this show is only possible thanks to the support of the Grey History community. The community is what allows this podcast to continue, and I can't stress enough how appreciative I am for those sponsoring the show. If you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it entertaining, if you find it educational, then I really can't stress this enough. I need your help to continue to produce history that isn't black and white. It takes a tremendous amount of time to produce episodes of this length and detail, and there's a very real risk that I won't be able to continue to do so for much longer. So please support the show, get access to a range of exclusive benefits, and help ensure that there's more grey history waiting for you in the future. For as little as half a cup of coffee, you can support the cause today. There's a link in the show notes and on the website. As a reminder, 
those true revolutionaries on the $5 per episode tier already have early access to episode 59, The Purge of the Girondins Part 1. So if you feel like donating a full cup of coffee per main narrative episode, that is ready and waiting for you right now. It's with great pleasure that I now get to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. Because this episode was a little delayed, we have had several sign-ups in the last few weeks. And just to be clear, this list is as of the 31st of August. If you've joined the community since the start of September, your personal welcome will be in episode 59. And if you have early access, you can go hear that personal welcome right now. So, with that clarification out of the way, let's introduce some of the most amazing people on the planet. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens Steve, Brandon, Mark, Joe, Kevin, John W., Ryan, Christopher, Jay, Sarang, Jason, Richard, Yuri, Damien, Jamie, John C., Greg, Green, and Adrian. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Kelly, Scott, Joanne, James, Nicholas, Tim, and J.H. I hope you all enjoyed your early access to this episode more than a few weeks ahead of everyone else. Of course, all revolutions need their champions. So a special thank you to Cindy, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, and Tom. Lastly, one final thank you to the amazingly generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, and Orga. Before we get into it, I'd like to make just one last thank you to those people who have been leaving written reviews, sharing the show on social media, writing in words of encouragement, and just helping Grey History in some other way. There have been some fantastic written reviews of late, so if you've left a review on Apple Podcasts in July, August, or September, thank you so much for taking the time. As a reminder, I need your support to continue to create grey history. So between now and the next episode, if you can find just one opportunity to share the show with friends or family, that would be amazing. Anyway, that's enough from me. So let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 58, The Faction Menace. In the beginning, there was division. It could be found in the court, the parlements, and both assembly of notables. It could be found in the army, the aristocracy, and even the much mythologized estate general. From the very first day of the French Revolution, division, disunity, discord, and dissent were its defining characteristics. In fact, they were what enabled the revolution to occur in the first place. 
but of particular interest to us is where all this division took place. The most consequential feuds did not emerge in the court, the army, or even the new National Assembly. Instead, it was the fault lines in a single political society which gripped the revolution for years. It was the dissent within the Jacobin Club which would alter the course of history. In the aftermath of the flight to Varennes, the broad church of the Jacobin Club experienced a fundamental restructuring. Concerned that the revolution had gone too far, many constitutional monarchists departed the club in July 1791. It was then that they established a new society known as the Fions. But the departure of these moderate royalists hardly ushered in a new era of calm and cohesion within the Jacobins. Instead, the march to war merely created new ruptures, rifts which scarred the society and created unbridgeable divides. On the one side were the Brissoans, later to be more commonly known as the Girondins. Infamously the advocates of revolutionary war, they sought to use conflict to export the revolution abroad while solidifying it at home. Opposing them and their calls for war was once a lonely task. But someone was up for the challenge, and that someone was the then former deputy Robespierre. Warning that no one liked armed missionaries, Robespierre predicted a disastrous war, and he was proven right within months. Critically, as the Jacobin Club debated the merits of a crusade for universal liberty, the discussion was anything but peaceful. More than just a clash of policy, the debate turned into a bitter and venomous contest which poisoned the club's fraternal bonds. It became one of personal feuds and intense rivalries, and these individual antagonisms mixed with genuine differences in policy, both large and small. In an environment which had been for years characterised by fear, suspicion and a belief in conspiracies, it did not take long for these tensions to become all-consuming in nature. When the National Convention was inaugurated in September 1792, the two sides already considered the other to be two-faced, self-serving and most importantly, treasonous. Robespierre and those of like mind amongst the emerging mountain had ample reason to suspect the Girondins. The Girondins had reluctantly accepted the overthrow of the monarchy, they had resisted the first revolutionary tribunal, and they had, according to the mountain, conspired secretly with the court of King Louis XVI. Which, to be fair, was all true. Accused of plotting against the people and ignoring the needs of the sovereign power, leading figures of the Montagnards were ready to arrest and try their fellow Jacobins. The Girondins, however, had their own list of grievances. From their perspective, leading figures of the mountain were responsible for the bloody September massacres. Furthermore, they feared that Robespierre and others harboured ambitions for dictatorship and unlimited power. Perhaps they would use the federal government 
to impose their own tyranny on the departments. Or perhaps they would install a puppet to the throne, such as the former Duke d'Orléans. The former Duke was now a deputy in the convention, and sure enough, he sat with the mountain. In short, if the Montagnards accused the Girondins of being treasonous conspirators harbouring royalist plots, plots which were designed to entrench their own power, well, the Girondins replied with the age-old classic, I know you are, but what am I? The convention's trial of the king only deepened divisions further. The Jacobin Club had formally expelled leading Girondins shortly before the trial, and the proceedings quickly became a proxy war for control over the convention. Critically, as the trial drew to a close, leading Girondins had lobbied for a national referendum to determine the fate of the king. The effort failed to spare the condemned, and ironically, it also condemned the instigators. The appeal to the people had exposed the Girondins to further accusations of royalist conspiracies. While these accusations would haunt them for months, their importance would be felt immediately. Within days of the king's execution, members of the Jacobin Club were already calling for the reinstatement of the Revolutionary Tribunal. We heard in the last episode that speakers at the Jacobin Club were pushing for the arrest, trial and execution of leading Girondin politicians. Importantly, these calls were not just from overly enthusiastic Saint-Culottes or some second-tier deputies. Instead, Robespierre himself was supportive of the move. He was just adamant that it be done through legal means, as a purge through insurrection could fundamentally weaken the national government. Unsurprisingly, the multiple crises of early 1793 did nothing to encourage a kumbaya moment. Far from cleaning up revolutionary politics, the soap and sugar riots which gripped Paris in February were quickly used as a means to bludgeon the opposing side. Likewise, the sudden and successful Austrian counterattack merely accentuated existing divisions. As the Jacobins demanded the Revolutionary Tribunal and the reorganisation of the ministry, the Girondins warned of tyranny and dictatorship. Soon faced with insurrection in the Vendée, even the prospect of civil war failed to unite the convention. In fact, the rebellion in Western France was just another means to attack. In March 1793, Robespierre likened the Vendean rebels to his Girondin opponents and called for the extermination of both. Robespierre proclaimed, I declare that we must not only exterminate all the rebels in the Vendée, but all the rebels against humankind and the French people. There are only two parties, that of corrupt men and that of virtuous men. Do not distinguish men according to their fortune and their state, but according to their character. There are only two classes of men, the friends of liberty and equality, defenders of the oppressed, friends of the indignant and the sinful, rich, unjust men and tyrannical aristocracy, 
That is the division which exists in France. Yet, of all the crises of 1793, there is none of greater significance to the factional feud than that of de Maurier's treason. De Maurier had long been associated with the Girondins, and they had long championed this saviour of the Republic. As such, his treason and attempted coup severely weakened his former allies in Paris. The Montagnards already believed that the Girondins were closet royalists. Was the treason of their most esteemed general not just the latest and most undeniable proof that such allegations were true? Furthermore, in his letters to the capital, de Maurier had denounced the Jacobins and the Parisian Saint-Culottes. Was this not what the Girondins did on a daily, nay, hourly basis? Echoing the vile words of the treasonous general, the treasonous general they supported, surely the Girondins were emulating him as well. If not publicly, then at least in royalist conspiracies behind closed doors. On April the 3rd, Robespierre recommenced the attack. I declare that the first measure of public safety that we must take is to pass a decree accusing all of those who are suspected of conspiring with de Maurier, and especially Brousseau. I must admit, I do chuckle at that line. Just in case there be any doubt as to who Robespierre wanted arrested, he singles out his arch-nemesis Brousseau for extra clarity. But although compromised, the Girondins appreciated the severity of the moment. Radical Saint-Culottes were demanding their expulsion from the convention, and an insurrection had been barely averted weeks prior in early March. With leading Jacobins clamouring for their trial, inaction was not a possibility. The execution of Louis had shown the path for traitors, and the Girondins were being accused of treason. Having read a few inspirational Instagram posts, their plan was simple. Punch back. Concluding that the best defence was a good offence, the Girondins came out swinging. The opportunity for response occurred on the 10th of April. Days after the establishment of the new Committee of Public Safety, Robespierre once again denounced the counter-revolutionary desires of the Girondins. His list of accusations was long, to say the least. These included leading France into a war which they subsequently had undermined, opposing the overthrow of the monarchy, and supporting the good-for-nothing traitors, Lafayette and de Maurier. Robespierre also denounced the Girondin support for the appeal to the people, he attacked their criticisms of Parisian Saint-Culottes and the Parisian municipal government, and he blamed the Girondins for the convention's current divisions. According to Robespierre, Brousseau and his allies were responsible for pretty much everything. Corrupting public opinion? Tick. Conspiring with European monarchs? Tick. Seeking to reinstall the monarchy? Tick, tick, 
tick. It was, in short, a considerable list of accusations. But perhaps Robespierre had been a little too ambitious. The famed Girondin orator Venu had been personally accused by Robespierre, and so he took to the floor of the convention. What followed was a two-hour speech in which Venu systematically retorted each of Robespierre's accusations. Historian Claude Bowers describes a brilliant and crushing reply, which resulted in Robespierre's speech becoming almost forgotten. Likewise, historian Paul Hansen claims that Vernu parried the specific allegations quite deftly, discrediting Robespierre by focusing on his reliance on rumour and innuendo. In one of his most brilliant and spontaneous speeches, Vernu sought to defend his actions and those of his peers. He unashamedly championed moderation and denounced attempts to bring the revolution by means of terror. According to Vernu, it was moderate approaches which had saved the Republic from the terrible scourge of civil war, and it was such moderation which would prevent the nation from sliding into despotism. Critically, Vernu sought to discredit Robespierre and the extreme political elements of the capital. The orator reminded the convention that he had been the president of the Legislative Assembly on the 10th of August, and thus he had personally overseen the suspension of the king. He defended himself by claiming that he had been no moderate then, and contrasted his actions with Robespierre, who he claimed had been hiding in a cellar. Continuing in his speech, Venu asked his fellow deputies to ponder who it was that was truly undermining the power of the convention. Who was it that was actively weakening constitutional government? Surely it was not the moderates of the Girondins who welcomed national representation, but instead the Parisian deputies who argued in favour of purging the convention of their political opponents. Surely it was those arguing for the removal of democratically and legitimately elected representatives who were undermining the national government and the principles of national representation. An insurrection had been narrowly avoided on the 10th of March, but leading Jacobins and their allies in the clubs and the sections were still demanding the Girondins be purged. Some leaders of the so-called enraged were demanding a fresh day of violence and unrest. Vernu's reply effectively flipped the script and put the onus of treason and conspiracy back onto his accusers. In fact, so effective was his speech that Vernu helped to compel the convention to act. Days later, a leading Jacobin would be impeached and tried before the newly re-established Revolutionary Tribunal. But before we explore this famous trial, a trial that was an absolute disaster for the Girondins, we need to talk about an important development within the factional arena. In early April, Maurier's treason and the shock and outrage it produced permeated throughout everything. The Girondins were severely compromised 
by their long associations with the general, and in an effort to defend themselves from attacks, some Girondins made, well, a teeny tiny error. Seeking to deflect suspicion from their connections with de Maurier, some started to emphasise the same associations between leading Jacobins and the general. Remember, many Jacobins had been staunch supporters of de Maurier right up until he went rogue. After all, he was the victor of Valmy and the conqueror of Belgium. He was the saviour of the Republic. So the close associations were entirely understandable. Of critical importance, a few Girondins sought to connect de Maurier with Danton. In the weeks before de Maurier's treason, Danton had spent time at the front lines. How did this influential Jacobin fail to see the coming catastrophe? Why did he heap praise on the general when his coup was so close to fruition? Perhaps Danton and the Jacobins were part of de Maurier's counter-revolutionary plot. No concrete evidence has ever emerged, but we're going to be discussing this possibility in one of the episode extras for this episode. For Danton admirers and detractors alike, I guarantee you'll learn something new about this ever-divisive figure. As a reminder, I desperately need your help to keep Grey History on the air. Support the show for as little as $2 a main episode, and you'll enjoy all the amazing bonus content and perks that comes with sponsoring proper, detailed history that isn't black and white. Without your support, Grey History could well become a mirror image of de Maurier's invasion of Holland. So, Danton's public support for the general was now being used against him, just as their prior advocacy was being used against the Girondins. And this mudslinging is critically important. You may remember that when Danton was placed in the Executive Council, after the overthrow of the monarchy, his position as Justice Minister was supported by the Girondins. Figures of both sides of the factional divide saw Danton as a sort of go-between figure, a man acceptable to both factions, and one that could potentially help them cooperate. The possibility of this diminished greatly after the September massacres, with the Girondins holding the mountain, including Danton, the then Justice Minister, responsible for the slaughter. It diminished further when the Girondins also repeatedly warned of Jacobin dictatorship. But Danton's cooperative attitude towards the Girondins had not yet been extinguished. Unlike Robespierre and Marat, he had never really prioritised the factional squabbling which had consumed the convention, seeking to focus instead on diplomacy and matters of foreign relations in particular. However, the factional warfare of early 1793 helped to put an end to Danton's patience. In March, he had become infuriated by Girondin resistance to his various proposals to reform the government. They had opposed the reintroduction of the Revolutionary Tribunal, and they had resisted the reorganisation of the ministry. Worse still, he had been accused of aspiring towards dictatorship and seeking to install a Jacobin tyranny. From his perspective, all he sought was good government, the kind of measures and reforms 
so obviously required when the enemy was quite literally at the gates. Danton had become exacerbated with the Girondins, and now he was pushed too far. Accused of conspiring with de Maurier, Danton's response was severe. He realised the political vulnerability and was no doubt genuinely enraged by accusations of treason from his fellow deputies. Perhaps there was some truth to these accusations, as we'll discuss in the episode extra, but importantly, if Danton had once stood apart from Robespierre and Marat and other leading Jacobins in his willingness to cooperate with the Gironde, this distinction was now no more. Henceforth, he would not break bread with the despised faction of moderation. On the 1st of April, Danton aggressively rebutted any accusations of conspiracy. Addressing the Montagnard deputies of the convention, an angry Danton proclaimed, You, who have proudly decreed the death of the tyrant, rally against the cowards who wished to spare him. Close your ranks. Call on the people to gather in arms against the enemy abroad and to crush the enemy within. And by the firmness and constancy of your character, confound all those wretches, aristocrats, moderates, all those who have slandered you in the departments. No further compromise with them. I have retrenched into the citadel of reason. I shall emerge with the cannon of truth. I shall pulverize those wretches who have sought to accuse me. So, as the convention descended into renewed bickering, Danton had broken with the Girondins. Historians debate as to whether or not this break was permanent, but there is a clear shift in Danton's attitude towards his fellow deputies. With Robespierre and Marat having demanded for months the expulsion and trial of their opponents, the loss of Danton's eagerness to cooperate was a severe blow to the fortunes of the Girondins. It would take time for these consequences to manifest, but manifest they most certainly will. Yet, the accusations against Danton were not the only tactical mistakes made by the Girondins. Another two would occur in early April, as the convention was consumed by this faction menace. Both of these mistakes had considerable consequences. The first could be found amongst the denunciations of the 1st of April. With both sides accusing the other of treason, and both sides smearing the other with associations to de Maurier, a Girondin deputy proposed that the convention introduce a consequential reform. Up until now, the deputies of the convention had enjoyed legal immunity. Since June 1789, deputies of the national legislature had been exempt from prosecution. As of the decree passed on the 1st of April, this was no longer the case. Deputies could now be arrested and charged with treason. Furthermore, they could be tried by the newly established Revolutionary Tribunal, a court from which there was no appeal. Perhaps it comes as no surprise 
to find out that it took all of five minutes before deputies were in the firing line. And that brings us to the second tactical mistake, the arrest of a very prominent, very influential and very divisive deputy. As discussed earlier, the National Convention decided to arrest one of its own in mid-April. Earlier that month, some Jacobin deputies had been up to, well, no good really. On the 5th of April, the radical journalist and deputy Marat had assumed the rotating presidency of the Jacobin Club. On the same day, the Parisian Society sent an address to all the affiliate societies across the nation. This address was controversial, to say the least. Proclaiming that counter-revolution had infiltrated the government, the circular announced that criminal delegates, aka the Girondins, were in league with foreign monarchs. Warning that the murder of patriots was at hand, the document called on the provincial societies to explicitly state their wish for the instant recall of all deputies who did not vote for the death of King Louis. This was, of course, a very clear way to state the recall of almost half the entire convention. Remember, the number of deputies who voted unconditionally for the death of Louis was only the barest of majorities. Describing the Girondins as traitors, royalists and incompetents, the Jacobins were forcefully supporting the idea of ridding the convention of their factional opponents. In addition to Marat's usual radical writings, the Girondins saw an opportunity. Here, the then president of the Jacobin Club was clearly fomenting unrest against the convention. Furthermore, in demanding the recall of all deputies who had voted against the execution of the king, Marat had attacked not only many Girondins, but many deputies of the plain as well. This not only exposed Marat to the convention's wrath, but also the entire Jacobin leadership. Marat had been acting as the president of the society, and so the Girondins could tarnish the Jacobins with Marat's actions. In the aftermath of Vernu's speech on the 10th of April, the one where he effectively rebutted Robespierre's denunciations, the convention was increasingly willing to crack down on what was perceived to be attacks against its authority. On the 13th of April, the convention voted to impeach Marat and send him for trial before the new Revolutionary Tribunal. With so many deputies away on mission, just more than half of the convention was actually present to vote on the matter. Of the 376 who did vote, almost two-thirds voted in favour of impeachment. The Girondins were using the absence of their Jacobin colleagues to control the floor of the convention. But it's here that we arrive at what historian Paul Hansen calls a tactical mistake and what chess.com would rudely label as a blunder. Marat's trial, just 11 days later, was an unmitigated disaster. Despite being convinced that the evidence was overwhelming, Marat's opponents had miscalculated. Vocally supported by the Jacobins, the Paris Commune, and large numbers of the Saint-Culottes, Marat delivered an impassioned speech in which he offered himself as a martyr for liberty. 
the Parisian jury sat for a mere 45 minutes before Marat was acquitted. If the Girondins had succeeded in their earlier efforts for a truly national jury consisting of jurors from across the country, then perhaps the result would have been different. But they didn't succeed, and so the result wasn't. Paraded about like a triumphal hero, the divisive deputy could have lost his head had he been found guilty. Instead, it was those who had accused him who were now in the crosshairs. Historian Marisa Linton describes the importance of Marat's trial in the escalating feud between the mountain and the Gironde. As the Jacobin Louvassay later pointed out, it was the Girondins who set the precedent for attacking the inviolability of the deputies by acting against d'Orléans, a motion proposed by Buzot and supported by Louvet. It was the Girondins, too, who used the new decree to send Marat before the Revolutionary Tribunal for an incinerary address put forward by the Jacobin Club, which he had signed as president. The Girondins' actions signalled the opening move of the struggle to the death between the factions. Had the Girondins succeeded, Marat could well have been the first deputy put to death, but he was acquitted amidst scenes of enthusiastic support by the Parisian crowds. The Girondins' attempt to eliminate Marat was a serious blunder. It set a precedent for deputies to use terror against one another, thus heightening the stakes in the factional standoff. Henceforward, the factions understood that if they were to hesitate to seek the death of their opponents, their opponents might not feel similar scruples. In short, the removal of parliamentary immunity and the impeachment and trial of a leading Jacobin demonstrated for all to see that the stakes had been raised. The revolutionaries were now, undeniably, in a struggle to the death. The victor was far from certain, but it was clear that blood would flow. Hold on a minute, I hear you ask. The arrest of the Duc d'Orléans? The king's own cousin, the one-time hero of the revolution, rumoured to aspire for the crown, the one who voted shockingly for the death of King Louis XVI. How did this prominent figure come to be arrested in early April? Well, the downfall of the Duke, alongside with Danton's suspicious activities in Belgium, are covered in the two mini-episodes accompanying this episode of Grey History. As a reminder, Grey History needs your support to stay on the air, and in sponsoring the show, you'll gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content such as full-length bonus episodes and the amazing episode extras which accompany every episode of the show. In this case, there's almost 20 minutes of episode extras for episode 58 alone. So if you're not listening to those episode extras, well, you're missing out on almost a third of Grey History. You'll also get an ad-free feed and other fantastic perks. Most importantly, you'll be doing your part to keep this independent podcast alive, because it's only with the support of the community that grey history can keep going. So 
for as little as $2 per regular episode. You can do your part, as well as access hours of exclusive bonus content, including the two episode extras for this episode. Hit pause now and follow the link in the show notes or on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. Help produce history that isn't black and white, and help keep grey history running. I look forward to welcoming you personally. The Jacobin counterattack did not even wait for Marat's acquittal. Three days after the convention impeached Marat, the body was interrupted by delegates of the Paris sections. Supported by the Paris Commune and the city's radical political associations, the deputation was headed by Pache, the still new mayor of Paris, who had previously been the war minister. Yes, the same war minister who had so bitterly fought with the Girondin interior minister Roland, as well as the then national hero, General de Maurier. Enraged by Marat's impending trial, the delegates demanded the expulsion of 22 leading Girondins. This demand enraged deputies from both the Gironde and the Plain, and soon deputies were crying out that they should all be added to the proposed list. With such a uniform backlash against the petition, the cries for a purge were denied. But the precedent was set. The Paris Commune, alongside the city's radical clubs and sections, had conducted an undeniable assault on the Convention's authority and autonomy. This was the national government, but it was being undermined by the authorities and societies of the capital. The way was being cleared for the forceful expulsion of the Girondins. Yet, at the start of the last episode, I told you that three critical developments occurred in response to the various crises of the spring of 1793. The first was a legislative response to the revolution's numerous threats, and we've already discussed a range of decrees and reforms which ultimately paved the way for the coming reign of terror. The second was an increase in the factional feuds which plagued the revolution. This faction menace we've just discussed at length. But the third development is what I like to call the moving of the mountain. And yes, I'm claiming copyright on that phrase for whenever I eventually decide to write a book on the revolution. This third development was a fundamental realignment of the Jacobin Club to the policy priorities of the Parisian Saint-Culottes. We have already seen the further radicalisation of the Saint-Culottes thanks to new leadership, economic hardship, food shortages and political division. I've also teased previously that the mountain was in a precarious and untenable position as the emerging enraged ones threatened to supplant the Jacobins' authority as the standard-bearers of the revolutionary left. Well, it's here, from April 1793 onwards, that we really start to see the moving of the mountain. Broadly speaking, many Sankulots and their representatives in the clubs and the sections sought a whole host of political, social and economic reforms. Politically, 
we have already seen the Jacobins adopt many of their key demands. It was the Jacobins who championed the reintroduction of the Revolutionary Tribunal, and it was the Jacobins who spearheaded harsh measures against emigres, non-constitutional clergy, and many other suspects of the revolution. This was aligned with the demands of both the Sanculots and the emerging radical grassroots leaders who comprised the enraged. But this was by no means the end of this political realignment. In the first months of 1793, many leading Jacobins had embraced the issue of recalling and replacing Girondin deputies. The city's radicals had been forcefully demanding the purge of the appealers for months, and over a period of time, this call had been taken up by prominent Jacobins. Robespierre didn't want an insurrection, but he did vocally call for the removal and trial of treasonous Girondin deputies. Likewise, Augustin Robespierre, the younger brother of Maximilien Robespierre, and himself a deputy in the convention, was forcefully making the case in early April. In fact, on April the 5th, he called on the sections of Paris to petition the convention and force his colleagues to arrest the unfaithful Girondins. Even if they weren't yet supporting outright insurrection, the advocacy for the recall and replacement of Girondin deputies was a major concession to the political demands of the Saint-Culottes. This was an implicit acceptance of their calls for more direct democracy, as the issue as to whether deputies could even be recalled and replaced between elections was hardly a settled debate. As a quick aside, it's still not a settled debate. In the 21st century, some countries like Canada, Australia and New Zealand have no recall elections at the federal level, while others, such as the United Kingdom, do have a mechanism for recalling members of parliament, but in that case, it cannot be triggered by mere popular initiative. In the United States, less than half of the 50 states currently allow recall elections, and those that do are a real mixed bag of political leanings. So the issue of direct democracy, and specifically the recall of elected representatives, remains a contested issue. Veering back on track, these political concessions were just the start. What followed was a host of social and economic policies, which members of the mountain had, up until recently, absolutely refused to introduce. We heard in episode 56, Fasting and Furious, a wide range of measures demanded by the city's radicals. A fixed price on bread and basic commodities, government intervention in the free market, and the death penalty for hoarders and speculators of grain. These demands went largely unheard, as the convention had recommitted itself in December 1792 to the most complete liberty in the trading of grain and flour. But over April and May 1793, the policies of the Jacobins shifted as they aligned themselves with the revolutionary vanguard in the capital. Against fierce Girondin opposition, the Jacobins won debate after debate in the convention, and they were assisted by members of the plain. Over the course of several weeks, the list of reforms was numerous. On the 11th of April, the convention outlawed so-called double prices. 
Henceforth, there could no longer be two separate prices for goods, depending on whether you were paying in coin or in the revolutionary paper currency known as the assignat. Furthermore, it was now illegal to refuse to accept assignat, as some merchants had previously been doing. But it was in early May that the Sankulots scored the big one. On May the 4th, a new law created a maximum on grain. Furthermore, not only had price controls been introduced, but new directives were decreed which required and empowered local governments to force cultivators and landowners to supply nearby markets. If the convention had proclaimed in December the free trade of grain and flour, then these new laws were the exact opposite. With price controls and forced requisition, the free market was substantially less free. Needless to say, this was a humongous victory for the Sankulots and the radical leaders which had pushed for these economic reforms. Despite being attacked in the wake of the soap and sugar riots in February, the leaders of the enraged, most notably Jacques Roux, had scored a tremendous victory. The mountain had essentially adopted their policies, policies which many Jacobins had not only refused to support previously, but in fact had actively opposed. And that brings us to the two grand questions that we're going to explore for the rest of this episode. Firstly, how did the Jacobins justify this moving of the mountain? After months of rejecting measures which offended their middle-class sensibilities, how did so many deputies justify their about-face? How did they rationalise their support for measures that they had vehemently resisted in the past? Secondly, why did they bother to rationalise their support in the first place? Did they genuinely believe that this was now good policy? Or were there alternative motivations in play? So, let's start with the how. To do that, we don't have to look any further than the most famous Jacobin in history, Robespierre. Robespierre. On the 21st of April, in the midst of the convention's passage of these economic reforms, Robespierre made an incredibly important address to the Jacobin Club. In his speech, he laid out his draft for a new Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Hold on a minute, why do we need a new Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen? Well, just as the National Convention needed to write a new constitution, that is what they were meant to be focusing on after all, this was the opportune moment to draft a new declaration. The original work, produced in August 1789, had no shortage of omissions and detractors, and so Robespierre was laying the groundwork for a revision to the fabled document. In his draft, we find the ideological underpinnings for the moving of the mountain, justifications and explicit support for many ideas that the Jacobins had either previously rejected or were at a minimum divided on. Furthermore, we also find much of the principles and the broader vision which the Jacobins would seek to implement in the new French Republic. One of the most stark differences between Robespierre's draft of 1793 
and the original Declaration of 1789 relates to property rights. In the original Declaration, property was specified as a right, just like liberty, safety, and resistance against oppression. But for those latter rights, the Declaration sometimes had very specific limits. For example, one's liberty was constrained by the fact that one could not harm others. Property, however, was a little different. Strict limitations had not been explicitly specified, and this had created a whole host of issues. For example, what was the government to do when so-called inalienable rights were alienating each other? What if my right to property, my right to buy and store grain, infringed on your right to liberty and security by starving you to death due to a lack of grain? My right to liberty was constrained by an inability to harm others, but my right to property was not so explicitly constrained, even when those property rights were harming others. These sorts of contradictions had originally been left unanswered in the original document of 1789. But in Robespierre's draft, property was to have very clear and definitive limitations. Henceforth, the right to property was to be limited by the obligation to respect the rights of others. This included their rights to security, liberty and life. Thus, this limitation on property rights could therefore justify things like price maximums and price controls, as they ensured that people's rights to existence were not being trampled upon by a merchant's right to sell their property at sky-high prices. To hear from Robespierre himself, the deputy literally stated that the right to property cannot prejudice either the security or the liberty or the life or the property of one's fellows, and he claimed that any possession or any trade that violates that principle is illicit and immoral. Thus, here we can see some of the justifications that Jacobins could use for supporting price controls, asset seizures, the forced sale of property, and other measures which the Jacobins had previously refused to support. Put simply, we have in this document the ideological basis for a reimagination of property rights. Individuals still had property rights, but these rights were to be clearly subordinated to the rights of others. In being subordinated to other people's rights to security, liberty and life, the government, especially a wartime government, could now justify a whole host of measures which were previously unthinkable. But before we move on, I do want to make one thing clear. While Robespierre was curtailing property rights, this was not some all-out assault on the rich. In fact, Robespierre explicitly stated his goal was much more a matter of making poverty honourable than of prescribing opulence, and that the cottage need not begrudge the palace. To use historian Peter McPhee's words, virtuous behaviour would both create and sustain Robespierre's ideal republic, not wholesale property seizure and redistribution. This latter approach might have been supported by some of the most radical and militant of the Saint-Culottes, but it was certainly not the vision advocated by Robespierre.
Yet, Robespierre's draft declaration was far-reaching, and it covered far more than just property rights. If the overarching goal of the Declaration of 1789 had been the conservation of individual enjoyment of individual rights, rights which were indivisible and inalienable in nature, then that goal shifted dramatically by 1793. Now, this draft focused on the general well-being of a society, and this common happiness was to be interpreted as more than just the sum of the happiness of individual citizens. According to historian Peter McPhee, there was instead to be a focus on the overall health and harmony of a society. As such, Robespierre's draft explicitly called for a commitment to public education and public work programs. Furthermore, Robespierre suggested a new progressive taxation system which would ensure that everyone could benefit from political participation, public education, and social welfare. Interestingly, Robespierre's draft Declaration of Rights also reconfirmed key principles of direct democracy. Specifically, his draft clearly stated the legitimacy of recalling and replacing representatives. This had been a key political demand of the Sanculottes, and here it was officially being codified in a leading Jacobin's proposed Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. Furthermore, Robespierre acknowledged the right to insurrection, describing it as the most sacred of duties when a government oppressed the people. In short, Robespierre was laying the ideological groundwork for the removal of the Girondin deputies, either through a recall or an insurrection. In addition to the subordination of individual property rights, the Sankolots had scored tremendous policy victories. The radical program of the enraged ones may have been outrageous in February, but just months later, the mountain was singing from the same hymn sheet. Put simply, as the convention passed a series of controversial reforms in April and May 1793, leading Jacobins were simultaneously presenting the ideological justifications for supporting these reforms. Reforms which many Jacobins would have opposed just months prior. So, this begs the question of why. Why had the mountain moved? To some historians, the answer is simple. Necessity. Locked in a mortal battle with their Girondin opponents, the Montagnards could not afford to lose their chief base of support, the Parisian Saint-Culottes. With the emerging enraged leadership threatening their position as the standard-bearers of the revolutionary left, the Jacobins had no choice but to realign their policies with that of the radicalising citizens of the capital. As historian Michael Sydenham states, the reality of the people's grievances and the extent of the rioting seen in Paris in February may well have suggested to the mountain that the future would lie with those who were first to accept the necessity for drastic economic legislation. Taking up a similar line of reasoning is historian Albert Sabul. A Marxist historian, his analysis is heavily laden with the ideas of class conflict, but nevertheless, he comes to a pretty similar conclusion to Sydenham. 
Sabul describes what he sees as the tactical nature of Robespierre's rights of man. He observes that in order to defeat the Gironde, it was necessary to give the Saint-Colottes hope that the Jacobins were moving towards social democracy, and thus interest them in a Jacobin victory. This is the reason we get the draft Declaration of Rights when we do. It's a quasi-policy platform, one intended to rally the Saint-Colottes behind the Jacobins and their conflict with not only the Girondins, but the entire counter-revolution, both abroad and at home. Sabul also notes that while some Jacobins genuinely supported the new positions of the club, others did not. For some deputies of the mountain, these measures had been adopted merely out of political necessity. Sabul writes, The rivalry between the Girondins and the Montagnards, therefore, assumed many of the aspects of a straight-class conflict. No doubt the majority of the Montagnards, like the Girondins themselves, were men of middle-class origins. But the needs of national defence and of the defence of the revolution forced them to accept a policy that favoured the interests of the common people, a policy which for some conformed to their own political principles but which, for others, was dictated purely by force of circumstances. So, according to historian Albert Sabul, the needs of the hour compelled some Jacobins to act. This view is shared by a variety of historians, originating from across the political spectrum. For a section of the Jacobins, Their support for these measures was definitely genuine. Engrossed in their local clubs and societies, they saw the hardships of the people firsthand, and they passionately believed that something had to be done. After all, what good was a revolution when citizens had been turned to corpses? As one representative on mission reported to his fellow deputies back in Paris, It is absolutely imperative to give the poor the means to live if you want them to help you complete the revolution. For other Jacobins, however, their support for price maximums and aggressive intervention in the free market was merely a tactical measure. It was the necessity of wartime, an unwelcome but essential act required to save the Republic. Summarised so well by a police spy at the time, the agent noted, The Jacobins know only too well that the people cannot be resisted when one needs them. And so, there we have it. Between March and June 1793, three fundamental developments occurred in response to the revolution's multitude of crises. Firstly, the convention introduced a range of repressive measures to fight the counter-revolution, both at home and abroad. Secondly, the factional feud, which had long crippled the convention, had truly become all-consuming. It was a faction menace, and it took no time at all for the deputies to start using the new repressive measures to attack their political enemies. Finally, the moving of the mountain realigned the Jacobin Club to policy priorities 
of the sans-culottes of Paris. The Paris radicals and the emerging leaders of the enraged had scored success after success as the Jacobins adopted positions which they had resisted just months prior. Yet, while the sans-culottes had seen their demands for economic reforms come to fruition, their demands for the expulsion of the Girondins had not been heeded. Despite the support of prominent Jacobins, the Girondins, the appealers, the traitors, the good-for-nothing royalists, still sat in the convention. This was unacceptable. Marat had warned that the counter-revolution had infiltrated the government. Robespierre himself had acknowledged the legitimacy of insurrection when the government oppressed the people. Pache, the mayor of Paris, had demanded the expulsion of leading Girondins. And yet, nothing had happened. With civil war in the West, foreign armies in the East, treason in the capital, and hunger in the home, this situation was untenable. Something had to give. As the factions of the convention waged their final battle for supremacy, a battle they knew full well was now one of life and death, the time had come for action. Popular action. The time had come for a new insurrection and the downfall of the Girondins. Thank you for listening to episode 58, The Faction Menace. In the next episode, we'll witness one of the great turning points of the French Revolution, the purge of the Girondins. You absolutely do not want to miss it. The two episode extras for this episode focus on Danton's potential links to de Maurier's conspiracy, as well as the arrest of the former Duc d'Orléans. As always, a huge thank you to those sponsoring the show, as it's only the generous support of the community that keeps Grey History on the air. If you're enjoying Grey History, if you'd like to continue to enjoy Grey History, then I really, really, really need your help to keep going. For as little as $2 an episode, for as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help promote history that isn't black and white and get a whole bunch of exclusive perks and episodes in the process. For the true revolutionaries donating $5 per episode, you already have early access to episode 59, The Purge of the Girondins Part 1. Another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, and a special call out again to the amazingly generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, and Orga. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like the History of Egypt podcast and Pax Britannica. I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity but unfortunately, some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one and two star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behaviour and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, 
you heard right. These reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, if you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular, and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help. And now, back to the show.